Good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church of Carl Junction. It's such a blessing to be here with you all this morning, and I hope you hear me when I say that. Uh, God has been so good to us. He doesn't need us, yet he saved us and gives us grace to meet together again. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to begin a three-part series through Acts 17. And uh, as we begin this series, we'll continue it next time that I preach sometime during the year. So whether that's in August, I don't know, but next time we'll continue it. Um, so hopefully you have something to look forward to <laughs> and not something to dread <laughs> come later in the year. But if you have your Bibles with you, uh, open up to the book of Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. Acts 17, 1 through 9, beginning in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. There is a travesty around the world this Sunday morning. This travesty is not in the sports world, though I'm sure there is one, or in the political realm where I know there is one, but it's a travesty in the pulpit. There are many pulpits that will be filled even this morning, and a false gospel will come from the lips of the men behind it. This false gospel will bring false hope of health, wealth, and happiness, and how to live a comfortable, not-so-Christian life. But friends, Paul in Acts 17 shows us that the will of God is not so self-indulging. In fact, it's entirely centered upon him receiving glory. And the fact that any of us are involved is a testimony to his immeasurable mercy and grace that he gives to his people. Paul, even arriving in Thessalonica, is a divine appointment. You see, Paul and his ragtag crew of preachers wanted to bring the good news of the gospel to Asia or to Bithynia. Flip back a page and look at Acts 16, 6 through 10 with me, or look up on the screen. It says, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to do what they wanted to do, even if it was a good thing. 
Paul wanted to go to Bithynia, but Jesus said no. God didn't just spoon-feed Paul everything he wanted in life. Paul didn't get all the desires of his heart. Paul wasn't going to live his best life now. He was called to live the life that God called him to live and wanted him to live and to preach the gospel to people that God had prepared to hear his gospel. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul listened to the Holy Spirit. Paul was obedient to the call that God had given him, and it didn't result in prosperity. It resulted in conflict and persecution, but ultimately, it resulted with glory being brought to our God. And for the Christian, that's our motto. For everything we do, whether we eat or we drink, everything we do is for the glory of God. And when Jesus redeems us from our sin, God creates this desire within us. He changes everything. And that's our main point this morning, is that when Jesus becomes our king, everything about us changes. If you walk away with one thing this morning, can you remember that? That when Jesus becomes your king, everything about you changes. What you want changes. What you do changes. Who you are changes. Your motivation, it changes. Your message, it changes. Your views, they change. Your entire life changes. And God, in his infinite majesty, chose to spread this good news through sinners. And a great deal of communication goes on in chapter 17 of the book of Acts. And this morning, I want to look at three elements of communication in Acts 17, 1 through 9. Three elements of communication. Our first element, element number one, is the messenger. Look at verses 1 to 2 with me again. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Thessalonica was one of the most important cities in Macedonia. It's even referred to as the capital city of Macedonia. So Paul, after receiving the call from God in chapter 16 to go to Macedonia, logically makes his way to Thessalonica. It's easy to overlook this journey that Paul made to arrive in this city, but in reality, this was a hundred-mile journey from Philippi where they departed from. Presumably, Paul and Silas only stopped in Amphipolis and Apollonia to rest for the night. Paul's a man on a mission here. There will be no distraction. There will be no diversion. He has heard from the Lord and is committed to obedience. Can we pause for a moment and ask ourselves, can we display that kind of obedience? Can we display that kind of commitment? Think for a moment. If this entire room was mobilized and as devoted as Paul is here in these verses... How different might this room look? How different might our community look? We tend to make excuses. So, well, I never had a vision. Or I never heard from the Lord like Paul did. Friend, the Lord has told us Sunday after Sunday to be ambassadors for Christ. 
to go to the lost with Christ, to lead our families in Christ, to share the good news of Jesus with those around us? How can we be a people on a mission together? How can we commit to this kind of obedience? Paul calls us to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And as Paul is the messenger in Acts 17, we are called to do the same. So I hope this year, in 2023, I hope that we stop making excuses. I hope that we start capitalizing on the opportunities that God has placed in our lives right now to be ambassadors, to be obedient messengers, to simply be his people. Paul speaks of his desire for his fellow Jews to accept the gospel in Romans chapter 9. Listen and read along with me on the screen. It says, Romans 9, 1 2, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accused and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Paul feels a great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in his heart. Why? Because his nation does not know Jesus as Lord. Church family, look around us. Look around your workplace. Look around your grocery stores. Look around your dinner tables. Our people don't know Jesus as Lord. Our hearts should break. We should lament. We should feel the same sorrow and anguish that Paul feels. Paul's heart breaks so much so that he proclaims that if it could be that him being cut off from the Lord would bring those that he loves to the Lord, he would do it. That's love. That is sacrificial love. That's the very act that Jesus did, sacrificing himself so that those he loved could be made one with God. Paul is willing to sacrifice himself for the gospel. What are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to sacrifice friendships, popularity, our comfort, our time, our energy, our careers, our money, or have we placed things off limits from God? We may say, Lord, we believe you, but you can't take this from me. Lord, we love you, but, but you, I give you everything, but don't take this away from me. Friends, if Jesus has changed everything for us, we should view these things as lesser than. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3, 8 through 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. A love like Jesus, a love like Jesus loves would be to sacrifice so that others can hear the good news that saves souls. And because Paul felt this way about his fellow Jews and about the worth of knowing Jesus, he started in the synagogue. This was Paul's routine for when he arrived in town. And Acts 17 gives us a little insight into how this might look. It states that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with the people there. Paul isn't lecturing content. He isn't preaching from a street corner. He isn't even handing out flyers, though those may be good things in the right context. Paul is reasoning. 
And this word for reasoning points us to a dialogue instead of a monologue. Paul's like an outfielder fielding baseballs, ready for the next one, sending them home. Yet instead of baseballs, it's questions of those he is speaking with. He is boldly presenting a defense for the gospel, not just once, but for three Sabbath days. Paul isn't word vomiting on people and expecting them to figure it out. Paul's not preaching down to people in his self-righteousness. Paul is meeting people where they are in humility. But preaching in self-righteousness, that's what Saul of Tarsus would have done. Paul, before his conversion, Saul of Tarsus would have bragged on his accomplishments in the flesh. Saul of Tarsus would have told them to be a better law follower like he was. Saul would have said, you just don't have it figured out like me. You just don't have it all together like I do. Saul would have gloated about being from the tribe of Benjamin or being circumcised on the eighth day. Saul would have let you know that he was the greatest Hebrew to ever do it. Yet Paul, the slave of God, says it's all worthless. It's all meaningless for the sake of knowing Jesus. Friend, we cannot reason with the scriptures if we're not reasonable with our position before God. We're sinners in need of saving. No work of flesh, no obedience of the law can save a soul. We are in need of resurrection. But praise God, he sent Jesus into the world. Praise God that he delivered a savior to us, a savior that would live a perfect life and die a death he didn't deserve. Praise God that he would see us in our sin and have mercy on us. Praise God that from those sinners, he would choose for himself a people and make them sons and daughters. Praise God, church. Praise the Lord that he has brought grace to us. Because when Jesus becomes our king, everything changed. Everything changed for us. And to find that power to change, God has brought the second element of communication, the message. Element number two is the message. Let's look at verses three to seven again. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. At home... I have a 100-pound Rottweiler, and at this moment, I can guarantee you he's sitting on my couch, staring out the front window, eagerly awaiting my wife's return home. His name is Theo. We love Theo, and one of my favorite things about Theo is that if you scratch him behind both of his ears, he just melts in your hand. You can tell he just loves it. He spends all day waiting for someone to come up and scratch him behind the ears. And if you get him just right, you can get his leg going, you know. Paul tells us that some people show up to churches looking for that same thing. And when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves 
teachers to suit their own passions. Paul, in Acts 17, he isn't there to scratch anybody's ears. Not a single ear. He's there to preach the word. He isn't there to simply tell people what they want to hear. He's there to tell them what they need to hear. Look at what Paul teaches in verse 3. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul is preaching what Paul always preaches. Christ and him crucified and the resurrection from the dead. It's the gospel. Paul is walking these people through the Old Testament, showing them that the Messiah needed to come and die for the purification of sins and to rise from the grave on the third day. Paul would use passages like Psalm 22, which states in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does it sound familiar? And in verses 7 and 8, it says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And even further down in verses 16 to 18 of Psalm 22, it says, For for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Does it sound familiar? It should sound familiar. Of course, Paul would use texts like Isaiah 53. Starting in verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Paul would teach and explain that without the Messiah, suffering and dying, our fatal wound, our iniquities would not be healed. But over three Sabbath days, Paul wouldn't only teach the requirement of the death, but he would also teach the resurrection using verses like Psalm 1610, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Friends, Jesus did not see corruption. He rose from the dead on the third day, claiming victory over our sin and over death. But Paul's content didn't even end with the resurrection. In fact, the accusation against Paul and his ragtag crew of preachers is outed in verse 7. Look at verse 7 again. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. There is another king. But he isn't just another king. He isn't just another man that finds himself on a throne. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the one who God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the divine creator of all things, and all things were created through him and for him. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the preeminent one. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's not just another king. No, he's the king. His kingdom has no end. 
His reign has no limits. He upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants. The king that first came not to conquer kingdoms, but to conquer hearts and restore men back to what they were intended for, to himself. But is he your king? Who sits on the throne of your heart? In this day and age, we are so self-absorbed that we tend to be the ones sitting on the thrones of our hearts. From this king, he has seen that we are separated from him. He has seen our hostile minds. He's seen our evil deeds. And he has reconciled sinners to himself through his death so that we can be presented holy and blameless before him. Can I encourage you? If you're on that throne, step off. Kneel before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Repent from the evil things of this world, the sins you have committed, and find mercy at the feet of King Jesus. He sits on a throne that will not be shaken. Man, I've been holding on to that this week. In the midst of my pain, in the midst of my panic, in the midst of sickness and uncertainty and pain, sorrow, Jesus sits on a throne that will not be shaken. When your entire world is being thrown down around you, when, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when everything around you is just tumbling down, when you don't know where to look or where to run or how you will make it through, friend, look to Jesus. His throne cannot be shaken. Remember, in your panic and in your worry, there is another king, and he's your king, the king of kings. Receive and accept the good news of King Jesus and submit to him. But not everyone that receives a message accepts it. That brings us to the third element of communication in Acts 17, and that's the receivers. The receivers in verses 4 through 9. Read verses 4 through 9 with me again. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Every year I pretend that it's a good idea for me to buy all the necessary things for me to grow my own vegetables. <laughs> I will spend well over $50 on seeds, soil, grow kits, anything I need, etc. So after weeks of toiling and working hard, I produce probably 17 cents worth of green peppers. <laughs> My return on investment is grossly negative. But Paul, in Acts 17, spends around three months in Thessalonica planting the seeds of the gospel and watering them accordingly. And after his time in Thessalonica, God brings forth growth. And the growth is much more than 17 cents worth of green peppers. Verse 4 says that, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. 
There are two different groups of people that make up the receivers, okay? Two different groups. The first group is the offenders, and the second group is the offended. So we've got the offenders and the offended. The offenders are those that recognize their need, recognize that they are sinners before God, and they, they have offended the Holy One. That's the offenders. But the offended are those who heard the message and are just mad at Paul and Silas. The offenders recognize their sin before the Lord. See, the Holy Spirit has convicted these people of their sin, just as Jesus said the Spirit would do in the book of John. John 16, 8 states, And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. If you feel that conviction this morning, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it like the offended. Listen to it. Recognize your need for a Savior. Repent and turn to Jesus. These offenders, they felt that same conviction. They recognized their need for a Savior and have heard Paul preach that this Jesus whom Paul proclaims is the Christ. They see that Jesus is he who saves the world. Jesus is the son that has come to rescue the world, and it is he that will come again with judgment. And these months that Paul was at Thessalonica, resurrection power was brought to many people through the gospel, but it wasn't brought to everyone there. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 24. It says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To the offenders, the gospel is plainly seen as the power and the wisdom of God, but to the ones that only got offended, for the Jews, it was a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, it was foolishness. This is the very reason Paul was found reasoning with the Jews for three Sabbath days during his time there. The idea that the Messiah was to die, it was offensive to them. They hated the idea of it. They ignored it in the scriptures. And the Gentiles thought the, the entire idea was just simply stupid. But when Paul showed up and God moved and the power and the wisdom of God was put on display, they started to get jealous. That jealousy started to grow. It festered and catapulted them even deeper in their sin. They sought to find Paul and his crew. They said, we'll bring them out. We'll accuse them and we'll have them public, publicly persecuted. They devise a plan. They rile up a mob, attempt to draw them out of their house, then restrain them when they get them, accuse them of treason. But it backfires. Paul and Silas are already gone. So they take Jason and some of the Christian brothers there, but without the actual individuals that they are accusing, it can't really go anywhere. But they say something very specific about Paul and Silas. Look at the end of verse 6 with me. It says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's the power of the gospel. To turn the world upside down. In our sin, our world is entirely upside down. We love what is evil and we hate what is good. But the gospel flips things back right side up. And in our sin, it is entirely offensive. We hate it. These men, they feel it. They see it in the lives that are being changed. It infuriates their hearts. They show us what Romans 5 teaches, that in our natural state, we are enemies of God. But those that have accepted the gospel, it reminds us that it has the power to save, the power to flip the world upside right. Jesus changes everything for us. And for those offenders, he did that. 
he made them overcomers. And today, if that hasn't happened for you, it can. It is available to you today, and I pray it does. I pray you see Jesus and are changed by his power. Christian, Jesus has changed everything for us. Amen? We must sacrifice even ourselves and go to the broken world with the good news of the gospel. We must cling to Jesus in even the darkest moments of life and know that his throne is unshakable. And we must live a life so driven by the gospel that we turn the world upside down. Let's pray.